0: Welcome to the podcast, Canadian Meets the South, episode 6. Um, today I'll be talking about American secession, the looming threat of a national breakup. Uh, this book came out, I believe, last year, and it talked a, a lot about um, secession and the um, Uh, in the American context and in the Canadian context, as well as secessions um, in different countries, but mostly through America and Canada. Um, And obviously, the title of the book is called American Secession, written by an American, uh, who, I guess, was Someone on the right, um, he obviously talks about um, the pros and cons of secession versus the the states versus states staying within the union, because it's clear in the United States that uh, there is a very, there is a growing political divide between the... Conservative, uh, red states and the leftist blue states. Um, but um, he talks about uh, Frank Frank Buckley. He talks about um, the reasons for secession in eighteen sixty to sixty one, and. I feel that he's bought into the myth that it was all about slavery. The Southern states seceded all just because of slavery, right? Um, That was one of the main reasons for the first seven states. But uh, the last four states that joined the Confederate States of America, Arkansas, Tennessee, Virginia, and North Carolina... They only seceded because Abraham Lincoln, the uh, the newly elected president, called for the uh, the troops, for for 75,000 volunteers to attack the Confederate states. And even among the first seven states, there there were other factors, such as the tariff. The tariff was a big factor, and... I remember reading a document on the reason why South Carolina seceded, like their, the uh, unofficial document. I, and it said, uh, I, I wish I could remember the exact name, but it said the tariff alone would have been sufficient to, to uh, a sufficient reason for secession. I do like how he brings up, um, the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions of 1798, um, which neither of them explicitly have written nullification. Well, the the original draft of the 1798 Kentucky Resolution by, by Thomas Jefferson uh, had it, had the word nullification. But John Breckinridge, who later became the Attorney General, the second attor- Attorney General under Thomas Jefferson, uh, s- scrapped it, and but did vocally uh, su- uh, support nullification when he when he submitted it to the Kentucky Assembly, and yeah, in 1799, there um, the Con- the Kentucky Resolution explicitly used. The term nullfica- nullification, while as in the Virginia Resolution of 1798, uh, James Madison used the word interprecision, and my thoughts on that were, um, my first thought was going to um, Abel Upshur's book, um, well, Ab- Abel Upshur had written about this. And I don't remember if it was it was during the time he he was countering um, the Supreme Court Justice uh, who was um, oh man I'm blanking out on him his he was basically the son of John Marshall um on the they were both on the bench for a long time Joseph Story Joseph Story had written the uh had had uh as a harvard law professor and a supreme court justice he he had written and then sold a book that got a lot that gave a lot of money um talking about um uh, the founding of the united states and abel upshire who who was a judge and then later served as the secretary of state and the secretary of the Navy under John Tyler before, well, before he served in Tyler's cabinet, he, he wrote a book countering uh, Joseph Story's commentaries on the constitution. Uh, Joseph Story tries, uh, brings the nationalist myth to life in his in his commentaries, while Abel Upshur talks about how the United States is not a nation, um, and that, um, and, and brings up the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions that, which also talk about the the, the nature of the union, how of the voluntary union, and. Uh, he says about um, interposition that he couldn't find, oh, he couldn't find like a way in which interposition can be done without it being nullification, because, and I'm bringing this up because Buckley tries to contrast it to uh, how he brings up the nullification crisis, and he. And Buckley kind of says that South Carolina stood down after nullifying the Tariff of Abominations and the force bill because because um, a compromise tariff was reached. So he says that nullification... He, he kind of says that nullification doesn't work, but interposition does. And then he talks about... Um, how the blue states would love to use would would love to interpose against um med, uh, ma, uh, marijuana sometimes medical marijuana sometimes recreational marijuana laws uh, federal laws and, and other times it would be about illegal immigrants they would interpose against ice and and you know immigration enforcement by the fedor- by the federal government but Abel Upshur um, said that, yeah, um, in order for, I can't see how you can do interposition without actually declaring a, a, a law, null, null and void, based on its constitutionality. Because it, nullification mean, yeah means that, um, well, nullification comes, I guess, from the era when the, the Catholic Church was in control of Europe. How you know a marriage could be annulled? It would no longer be. It, it would be void, um, in certain circumstances. Um, you know, it would. It's called annulment. I think that, at least, that is what um, this Italian professor. Um, he's, he's a conservative Italian professor. I he he's been, I. Uh, Marco Bassani, I think his name is, he's, he, he's in, he, I don't know if he's still at the University of Milan or if he's been fired for some Facebook post, but he, he shows up to occasionally at the, like, Abbeville Institute to give lectures, um, but, um, yeah, what, nullification is when uh, the federal law is declared unconstitutional and would not be enforced it would be null and void within the borders of the state at least that's how Jefferson had said it. while as interposition they would resist uh, the James Madison said it is of uh, you know the, the state the, the government's duty to... To resist unconstitutional laws. Um, I guess um Calhoun's uh, view of nullification was a little different from Jefferson's because Calhoun believed that one state could nullify for all. Well, I'm I'm generalizing what he said, but but um, it was it's in contrast to Jefferson's who who believed that. Uh, the unconstitutional law would just not be enforced within the borders of the state. But, um Yeah, Frank H. Buckley talks about about um, The difference between interposition and nullification, how he says nullification is not really a doctrine that's alive since the nullification crisis. I would disagree um, hence the the foremost John C. Calhoun scholar Clyde Wilson has said that nullification always works. Or at least that's what Brian McClanahan had said on his podcast, who he also reviewed um, Frank H. Buckley's book. But um, Brian McClanahan, if you don't know, is was the last uh, the last doc- uh, doctoral student under Clyde Wilson. And McClanahan has uh, his own podcast that I, I listen to called the Brown mcclanahan hand show um, which has a few hundred episodes now um, let's talk about um, Canada how he t- how he talks about, how he brings Canada's point of view so yes Canada was influenced by the the war to prevent southern independence, as Tom DeLuise would call it. I really don't want to call it the Civil War. Um, and uh, the the ideas of federalism were very st- strongly influenced in in um of American federalism influenced Canadian federalism as well. Of course, the idea that the federal government should not be the source of like the the solution to all of the problems in the country. They should look for decentralization, um, because, uh, you know, the state governments or the provincial governments would know better for, on how to deal with regional issues than, than the federal government. Um, I'll say this about Buckley. He doesn't talk about, um, the 10th amendment because he views the uh, he views um he doesn't he views it through a moral like uh, slavery through a moral lens and not really through the constitutional lens and says that if it if it was either slavery or or the civil rights revolutions like back in, in the 1960s then preventing secession would be well, he he concedes that maybe that perhaps it would be plausible, but I'm I'm saying no, it it isn't. You have to. There's a there's a thing called the Tenth Amendment, which um which solidifies how the uh, the Constitution was ratified, and the the proponents of the Constitution, um. They uh, always said that. Uh, or they they said in the the state conventions. Um, in seventeen eighty-eight to seventeen eighty-nine, like then, I guess for for Rhode Island, seventeen ninety, um, the the only powers that the that the 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 general government would have they would call it the general government or the central government. Um, because because it, the general government because. It was general. Um, it was there for general purposes only. They said the only power the general government would have would be the ones that the Constitution gives it. All other powers are reserved to the states or the people of the states or the people thereof. And yeah, that that um, that language of the which would would be solidified in the Tenth Amendment, and then later, the Tenth Amendment as well as the rest of the Bill of Rights would be would be put into the permanent con- uh, constitution of the confederate states. And I don't remember if it was in the, the uh, provisional constitution. I'm sure it was. Uh, because, you know, the, the, the southern confederation was, was founded on states' rights. So I feel that Frank H. Buckley, even though he is a right-winger... Or at least seems to be sympathetic to the right wing cause. He 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 makes it so that um, it would be okay to prevent the South or whoever to from seceding because of slavery or because of civil rights. And I'm saying no, it it's not because. They, that, this is not the, the within the jurisdiction, the constitutional jurisdiction of the federal government. The only powers um, it has are the ones that the Constitution gives it, and all other powers that are not that are not prohibited to the states are reserved to the states. Like, everything that's prohibited to the states is is in Article One, Section Ten. Or at least in the original constitution before the for the amendments. Um, so, um, in the Canadian context, he talks a lot about Quebec, right? I I feel like maybe he list, he missed an opportunity to talk a lot about Alberta because after Trudeau, like around. 2019, like this book was published 2020, but 2019, he talks, um, Albertans were really start to, starting to think about secession, right? And the Wild Rose Independence Party was spr- sprung to life in, it was just a provincial party in Alberta. Um, and, um, yeah, they're working hard for independence, Albertan independence right now. But, um... He talks, yeah. You know, he in terms of secession, he talks a lot about Quebec because Quebec isn't, you know, seceding for slave has never threatened secession over slavery. It's um or it's it's about it's about language, the um the French language and at the beginning, actually no at um and he brings up the court decision, which is very different from. Oh, like um, what the like the court had announced, that no, the Supreme Court of Canada had announced that like a, a middle way. He says that um, they don't, they can't the that any province cannot secede. Um, just unilaterally. Are they after they after a after a referendum with a clear question. Um, then they have to, well, he then use. it would clear question because it, the language of the, the of the referendums in nineteen eighty and nineteen ninety five weren't weren't as clear as they could have been on secession, but the la um the Supreme Court had said that um afterwards um the rest uh, the federal government after the 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 referendum with a clear question was. Uh, successfully passed um the the federal government and the rest of the province would have to re- negotiate in good faith on um on the, this departure by the province so he says this is kind of a middle ground they can't just secede as soon as possible like if they make the decision if the people of quebec or any province makes the decision and um The this is contrasted with Texas v. White in 1869 because Texas was trying to sue over over bonds issued during the war um, the war to prevent Southern independence and um it's I don't remember all the details but Texas as a Confederate state. Was um, uh, it w- it was told that Texas and, and any state could not unilaterally secede because Texas v. White was written by a obviously a pro-unionist, um, Supreme Court, um, headed by Chief Justice Salmon Chase. And, um, obviously, if they if they had said that's unilateral secession was legal then then the what would have the war been over. It would have been over with nothing like the the Congress and the the courts were I guess colluding together. Or was um as in the the Supreme Court was, was just, you know, reinforcing the the uh the decisions by the Congress because in 1865, um, when the, the states were coerced back into the Union, the, the radical Republicans were saying, oh, "Okay, you can't just come back into the Union without any punishment, so we're just gonna kick you out." Um, and this, hence, this is Reconstruction. They were occup- the Southern states were, were under a military occupation. It was a military dictatorship in in the in the con- former Confederate states. Um, which, you know, violates um, the, uh, I think it's Article 4, Section 4, that says the United States will guarantee to every state a Republican form of government. And, yeah, military dictatorship does not constitute a Republican form of government, but um, getting back to Texas v. White, um, it said uh, the ruling... By Samuel Chase had said, sorry, Salmon Chase. Um, Samuel Chase was a different, um, was, a, was a Federalist in the early court, um, along, long before Salmon Chase. And they had ruled that unilateral secession was unconstitutional. However, a state can be booted out of the Union. By by Congress, so basically, it's um, a state can't leave unless unless the other states agree to kick them out. That's and that's you know obviously not what the founders. Well, sorry, the the founding generation, whatever you want to call them. Um, what. And that would have believed and Alexander Hamilton, the most, one of the most statist of the founding generation of the drafters of the, at, at Philadelphia and in, um, in George Washington's cabinet had, had written in the federalist papers that it would have been madness for the federal government to, to, uh, uh, to use military force and invade the state. But um, his, his Am- Alexander Hamilton's system of uh, American school, which Henry Clay would later recall the American system, and Henry Clay was, and Abraham Lincoln was a disciple of Henry Clay, which included, and this, this system included high protective tariffs to pay for, as well as the central bank. To play to pay for internal improvements, which were basically corporate welfare for roads, bridges, canals, etc. Um, and uh, one more thing I'd like to talk about: um, Frank H. Buckley talks about um, contrasts size with um, with happiness. Like, is America too big? Because um, at the beginning, he talks about uh, he talks about uh, how he had met um, Don Livingston of the Abbeyville Institute, and he said that Don Livingston is no racist, and he's a he's a kind man. He's a he's conservative, obviously. Um, and um, and Don Livingston loves to to say how America is too big. I guess what. Frank H. Buckley missed is that um, the population um, when I think in 1787 when when the Constitution was drafted or around this time 1787 or 1789 when the Constitution came into effect um, the uh, the size of the uh, 13 states population wise was was four million today four million is the si- is this is the population of Alabama so um America's but um he doesn't mention this Buckley but he he is he is saying how America is so much bigger than it was in 1789 when the Constitution came into effect and um yeah decentralization will make people happy he contrasts size and happiness and goes over different graphs talking about uh, whether or not being happier being bigger means being happier and he talks about how america is somehow an exception and it might it may be due to the fact that america like being a, like being a big country because like if we, we're referring to like china um like if you're comparing China, America and China, which are both really big countries, China I mean isn't as free market. Like it has liberalized its economy since Mao Zedong had died. But um in terms of happiness, America is much happy happier for its size compared to China. And yeah, most of the most of the countries on the on the list that he gives we're, were happiness we're, we're, were small and happy like the happier they went the, the smaller they seem to be in terms of population um, and yeah like just, just, just remember Canada doesn't constitute like as a, a large country based on population it's, it's almost it's, it's about one tenth the size of the United States Uh, Just so just keep that in mind. Um, And yeah, he talks about um, how cultures are more monolithic in smaller countries. Like we talk about um, Sweden or Norway or something where almost everyone speaks just one language. Almost everyone's of the same religion. And almost everyone is experiencing the same geography and climate. It's a lot different from actual, from United States and actually Canada. <laughs> um, and yeah, the population is really small. He um, makes an argument that smaller can be, can it's, it's possible? It's possible that smaller could be, could be, uh, could lead to more happiness. But um, obviously, that's not always the case because we have the United States, right? And his conclusion is um, to the book. What I find interesting is because I, I'm think because the whole the, the title of the book is American Secession, right? And he actually says he comes out as a unionist, but he wants heavy decentralization. So I I guess I do like that. It's a, it's a very interesting position to take, considering that the book is named American Secession. He wants more power decentralized from the federal government. And I guess the the problem is that he's he lets the, the morality of slavery and the civil rights revolution um, influence his thoughts on whether or not secession should be allowed. Um, I believe in in unconditional secession like, well, I mean unconditional secession I mean secession for any reason at all because um, it shouldn't matter what the reason is it's my point like they have uh, each person has the right to determine their own destiny it's just the right they the Americans in 1776 believed in um, the right to self-determination um, and this is what um, Quebec, would say and like this the phrase no taxation without representation right I, I feel like this is a it's a little short it's um it's a it's a it's a cool phrase to say for sure and actually Gilles gil who was leader of the bloc quebecois in the federal parliament in canada loved to say this because he's a he was as he was a secessionist right he's he was the leader for a long time like um. Uh, he was leader before I was even born. Uh, he he was he uh, he was leader for for a, short, a brief period in '96, and then he became permanent leader in '97 until 2011, and then he ran as the leader again in 2015. But he he couldn't win his seat in 2011 and 2015, so that's why we have Yves Franca, Francois Blanchet, who who um you know he's the current leader of the Bloc Québécois um but uh yeah he liked in his debates um at least in the English debates um Gilles Duceppe liked to say no taxation without representation Is he firmly believes in the right to self-determination which um you know I I like to to look at um now let's talk about uh the election that happened um I guess uh, a couple of days ago, uh, where um, now they—they, I'm sure, um, separatist sentiment is separatist sentiment is really strong in Quebec. It, I believe that the Bloc Québécois won a couple more seats than before. They had they had thirty two, I think, before, and now they have thirty four seats, um, and. Um, but um, you will see really the the sectional tensions between the east and the west. Um, if you look at the map, <laughs> Saskatchewan went, went like all fourteen seats in Saskatchewan went went to the Conservatives, and thirty out of thirty four seats went to the um, the Conservatives in Alberta. Although they, this was actually a decrease because they had they initially had thirty three seats. And in Alberta, I believe Joe Clark, was in 17, in 1979, in 1980, I think, like during these, like in 79, I think, when he won, because, and Joe Clark's an Albertan, when he won uh, for a minority government, he had, he had, uh, won all of Alberta because, um, they were really unpopular in, um, uh, uh, Justin Trudeaus Trudeau's father Pierre Trudeau was really unpopular and I think in 1984 they also won all hundred uh, percent of the seats in in Alberta, the Progressive Conservatives, um, which is um, which is I can I can get into the the birth of the Reform Party and how the modern Conservative Party came about. but um, I'll just make a brief here. The Reform party, um, like by Preston Manning, the, the son of Ernest Manning, who was, the the I think, um, an Albertan premier for the Social Credit Party for over two decades, like from the '40s to the '60s, and this you yeah, know the Social Credit died, um, federally after um. After they ref- they had six seats all in Quebec and they all they all refused to. To. And I think one of them was Bose, Maxine Bernier's riding, And they all refused to support. Um, uh, they, they also refused to prop up the minority government of Joe Clark because uh, they he, he wouldn't recognize them. Like, I think he wanted like official party status would be 12 and he wouldn't give them the respect of being a, an official party. So that's why Joe Clark's party fell. And, and all of the social credit, the rest all of the the six Quebec seats in social credit of the social credit party were wiped out and social credit never became, um, and social credit died, I guess, in federally. But, um, Preston Manning, um, the, the son of the social credit premier, um, Ernest Manning had founded the reform party in, in the eighties. And, um, and they were mostly Western, fed up. with... They were Western, alienated Westerners, right? And Maxime Bernier said that it was a mistake for them to want to merge with the progressive conservatives, especially, um, you know, because President Manning wanted to become prime minister. Well, what can I say? And he he wasn't getting much support in the in the east. But um, now um, the um, Maxime Bernier. I'll, I'll talk more about the election. He said the first alert. He after the first election of the PPC in two thousand nineteen, which yeah, you know, they Maxime Bernier lost his own seat. He said, um, he said that President Manning had called him and 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 tried to you know, comfort him, saying they uh, they also called me my, my me and my party racist when I when I. Our, in our first election in nineteen eighty eight, but then by the next election, um, that uh, they couldn't do that anymore because they because it became clear that the term racist was just not ap- applicable to the Reform Party it was just it just wasn't true. Um. Now, um. The. So I I see I see, I see like sectionalism has really. Um, became so strong because after the merger and which in which the reforms where well, well they became the uh the reform Alli- they became the Canadian Alliance or um and after they merged with the progressive conservatives of so Joe Clark well Joe Clark had left by this time the party refused to to be a part of the the new conservative party then had, after the the principles forsaken the principles, but got an Al- an Albertan like Stephen Harper into power. Well Stephen Harper was defeated in 2015 by Justin Trudeau, who is the current prime minister. And um yeah, we see sectionalism has built up. There wasn't when I was growing up when Stephen Harper was the Prime Minister, there you would not see the sectionalism. Uh, at least you wouldn't you wouldn't hear it so much about how all how these Albertans or these we- or these westerners because there's some I guess there's some sectional this sectionalism or <laughs> um, separatist separatist sentiment in uh, the interior of the BC of British Columbia as well as in Saskatchewan um, they uh, wanted to um you would never hear this. When, like when I was growing up, when Stephen Hyper was the prime minister, but when, when Justin Trudeau was prime minister, yeah, you will you will see sectionalism like, like that in Pierre Trudeau's days. There was in 1982 there was a separatist MLA elected, but he he was quickly defeated. They the the establishment progressive conservatives made sure to target their resources in his his riding, so that the separatist MLA could be defeated. But the separatism, there's, there've always been separatists in Alberta and now I believe the, the Wild Rose Party has some, some, has been garnering some support now and who knows when they'll, the Alberta will have the next election. They're supposed to have, they, they, the last election was 2019. They might have it in 2023. And, um, I, I find it interesting. It's like, the the dynamic we have two sectional 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 um, sec, uh, separatist movements the Quebec separatists, and the Western mostly Alberta separatists, and um, there's a new party called the Maverick Party, headed by um, Jay Hill who who had served in the in the cabinet with with Maxime Bernier under Stephen Harper, and um. Yeah, um he he didn't actually run for parliament. He was just the he's just the interim leader, so he decided not to run and he said I my I already did my time. And he was Jay Hill was a former reformer. Like unlike Maxime Bernier. Bernier's father, Gilles Bernier was uh, his last term was when uh, in 1993 when when which was reforms second election, general yeah. election and which they became uh they were they they had basically replaced the conservatives as the the right wing opposition to liberal to the liberals and um hmm oh. um so yeah jay Hill is the leader of a Maver- the maverick party they didn't win any seats either they, i don't remember how many seats they, they're not as popular obviously as the People's Party of Canada Maxim Brandy's party they're a very new party this maverick party and they they want if they don't if um they have a two-track solution one is the Triple E Senate which was actually promoted by uh, president Manning when he was in the Reform party and also Stephen Harper um the Triple E Senate um equal effective elected like I don't know if that's if that's the correct order but yeah those three e's I I'm saying I don't think that's necessarily a good idea because um that's how it is in the United States um since they repealed the 17th amendment I think the 17th amendment was was a uh, was one of the biggest blows not if not the final blow to federalism in the United States because it centralizes power it removes the check of the states on the on the general government so i think it would be a good idea to to change the senate so that the the province the provincial legislatures um choose who becomes the senator like like they do in germany or in the netherlands or some other I'm not sure in Australia, some other senates, upper upper chambers, which are, um, but, um, if they don't get that the triple E Senate, then they then they'll just work for secession. And Maxime Bernier says this is not serious because the Bloc Quebecois actually has not been doing that much for Quebec. If you, uh, he says that you'd have to elect its people at the provincial level to. And the uh, the the Parti Quebecois since 1976, when um, they came to power. Um, I think in 1970 they they became the official opposition. Where I don't I don't remember. I'm not I don't remember all of this Quebec politics. I'm not a Quebecer, but they uh, believed in uh they they were the ones pushing heavily for more autonomy the the Parti Quebecois and they they're the ones who pu- who pushed for the referendum in in 1980 as well as the, the referendum in 1995 which was very close the the one the second one in 90, 1995 um but yeah um, fi- my final thoughts I, I do believe in the unilateral right to secession. And this is not the right of the government, of any level of government. It is the right of each person. And so when people like me say, I believe in states' rights, um, I don't actually believe that the state necessarily has rights. It's the people of the states that they decided, they decided to come together as, because they're a, as a minority within the, within the federation to come together to to advocate for autonomy um but yeah um i'm i'm glad to see i have some new subscribers uh, on youtube um uh, so yeah if um please keep uh listening to this podcast or, or watching on youtube um uh, And uh, I'll make sure to update uh, to come up with new um, podcast content um, either later this month or or next month in October. Uh, So thanks for watching. Uh, Bye now.